I'm Robin Chung, one of the digital social media co-editors for Heart Asia BMJ. And we're here to record a podcast with Dr. Rasha Al-Lami, who is the lead author for the recent Lancet paper on the Orbiter study. We're really delighted to have you here. And on behalf of Professor Kartikian, the editor of Heart Asia BMJ and our readership around the rest of the world, we really are grateful to you for agreeing to do a podcast with us today. Dr. Rasha Al-Lami, can you tell us the study motivation and the design and recap for our audience, please? No problem. Thank you so much for having me here today. So the Orbiter study was the first placebo-controlled trial of angioplasty in stable angina. And what we sought to do was look at the symptomatic benefit and benefit in terms of exercise capacity improvement in patients with single vessel coronary artery disease and symptoms of stable angina. And for the first time, we wanted to design a trial that would look at the clinical benefit we see, but enable us to work out how much of that clinical benefit that we see is due to a true physical effect and how much may be contributed to by a placebo effect. And in order to do that, we ran the first double-blinded trial in this topic. Um, In a way, I suppose, as conventional wisdom goes in cardiology, uh, PCI for angina was accepted pretty much as as dogma. Um, What made you choose the placebo-controlled design that you did? So you're absolutely right. I think for four decades now, we've been performing angioplasty for stable angina. The primary remit had always been symptomatic relief. We'd also hoped that we might be able to have benefit in terms of mortality benefit, myocardial infarction, rate reduction. Uh, Unfortunately, we hadn't seen that in previous trials, such as the COURAGE trial that looked at hard endpoints. And over time, trials such as COURAGE and FAME2 and other trials had encouraged us to believe that perhaps actually there was significant angina benefit. And of course, clinically, interventional cardiologists such as myself see patients frequently that tell us they feel better after their stents. Now, we have in the past uncovered that the clinical efficacy that we see in unblinded clinical practice and in unblinded clinical trials is often greater than we see in a placebo-controlled trial, such as in the renal denervation trials in hypertension. With these subjective endpoints, there's always a potential for the placebo benefit to significantly contribute to what we see. That's not to take that away from clinical practice, because of course the placebo benefit is part of being a good doctor. But we wanted to uncover how much of that benefit that we see is the true physical benefit. And I must admit, we thought this was going to be a slam dunk for PCI, that it would definitely improve patient symptoms and their exercise capacity, and perhaps be a trial that people quoted as evidence for what we do. And we were very surprised by the results. So where does Orbiter stand historically in relation to trials such as the ACME trial? So the ACME trial was obviously published in New England Journal of Medicine in the 90s. It was a trial of balloon angioplasty, and it looked at quantifying the symptomatic benefit and exercise time improvement in these patients. It took single-vessel coronary disease patients, very similar to those in Orbiter. Interestingly, some of those patients were actually post-MI patients, so perhaps a slightly different subgroup in that some of them may not actually have been stable angina patients in the way that we would recognise them today. But nevertheless, they randomised patients to either have angioplasty or have no treatment with significantly less medical therapy than we had in the Orbiter trial. And what they saw was that when they put these patients on a treadmill at baseline and then compared it to their exercise time six months later, they saw a 96-second improvement in the angioplasty patients. So this was fantastic, obviously, for angioplasty. Um, Now, what was interesting is that Orbiter really has many similarities to ACME, except that now this was a trial of 
conventional new age angioplasty with drug eluting stents in single vessel coronary artery disease patients but now the control arm and the treatment arm were both blinded to their treatment allocation with of course a placebo procedure in those patients in the placebo arm and we saw that the exercise time um, difference between the two groups was far smaller at around 17 seconds 16.6 seconds which was a surprise. And I think I remember reading that for the primary outcome measure, the exercise time difference you said was uh, in- increased by 28 seconds in the PCI arm yeah, and 12, so th- 12 seconds exactly. in the... Exactly. So the, so the difference between the two groups was 16.6 seconds, nearly 17 seconds, yeah. And of course, that was not statistically significant with a p-value of 0.2. Having said that, as you said, the, if you look at the within-arm changes, angioplasty certainly did improve exercise time. But then there was also a little bit of improvement in that placebo group. And when that was subtracted, the difference between the two was not as much as we'd expected. Mm. And that was a surprise? It was certainly a surprise, absolutely. I mean, I'm an interventional cardiologist. I put in stents all the time. I have patients who tell me they feel better. And these are stable angina patients. Of course, there are some patients who come back saying they feel exactly the same. But in the majority, many of them tell us they feel much better. So seeing these results on the back of ACME, on the back of FAME2 and Courage, which had shown symptomatic benefit, it was a surprise for sure. You know, there was a lot of checking and rechecking of the data before we released these results that would obviously, you know, cause some ripples in the cardiology community. Brilliant. And in terms of the patient baseline characteristics in the placebo arm, there were a higher proportion of diabetic current smokers and previous PCI patients. Do you think these factors explain some of your findings? I mean, I think numerically you may see that they were higher. Actually, the p-values were not statistically significant and absolutely not statistically significant for any of the baseline differences. Um, Of course, the nomenclature now and and most journal styles, and particularly the Lancet, would say that p-values shouldn't be presented for the baseline demographics. So, of course, they were removed from the primary manuscript because, of course, randomization should account for any issues between the two groups. So in fact, while numerically they may look larger, of course there were slightly more patients also in the PCI arm. Um, So they were not statistically significant yet. So I don't think that they've contributed to any change. And can you tell us about some of the secondary outcomes that you found? Yeah, so in terms of secondary outcomes, I suppose the most interesting one is looking at ischemia reduction by stress echocardiography. And what we found was that in this blinded trial, there was a very significant improvement in the wall motion abnormalities found at, ba- at the pre-randomization stage versus the follow-up stage in the angioplasty arm. So they essentially normalized in terms of ischemia while those patients in the placebo arm stayed much the same. And that p-value was very statistically significant, showing significant ischemia reduction, which, to be honest, from lots of doctors and for many patients, is a very significant finding. You know, we improved the blood supply to the heart, and that may have long-term consequences. Of course, we didn't look for that in orbiter. It was far too small and too short to look for hard endpoints. But trials such as ischemia may well show us that these changes are important. That's great. Um, So in a way, I suppose, this kind of validates some of our uh, day-to-day practice, where if I consent to a patient, I might say angiography or angioplasty may improve blood flow to the heart. Yes, I think we can certainly say that. We saw that both from the stress echo, but also from the invasive measures of physiology, so the fractional flow reserve and the instantaneous wave-free ratio, both significantly improved in the angioplasty arm. 
um, showing that we certainly improved the angiographic stenosis, we certainly improved the hemodynamic contribution of that stenosis, and we improved the consequences in terms of regional wall motion abnormalities. So we can certainly say there was ischemia reduction as assessed by all of those measures. Interestingly, that didn't relate as much to symptomatic and exercise time benefit as we may have expected. But perhaps that's because you require a, a more significant magnitude of effect in order to see it down the pathway um, in terms of how, what our patients tell us they feel. Great. I also found it interesting in reading the study that uh, both the placebo and PCI arms were maintained on dual antiplatelet therapy for six weeks because they were blinded. So in a way, not only did the patients' both arms have optimum antianginal therapy, they also had optimum dual antiplatelet therapy as well. Yes, I mean, so we did that deliberately, obviously, because we wanted to keep the patients blinded and clearly dual antiplatelet therapy as part of post-PCI treatment. An alternative strategy may have been to give the patients in the placebo arm a blinded um, dual antiplatelet, you know, a placebo dual antiplatelet drug. We didn't do that because we didn't have the finances for it. And I don't think that six weeks of dual antiplatelet therapy necessarily contributed to any benefit for the placebo arm because obviously it's too short um, in terms of follow-up time. But yes, the medical therapy protocol was identical for both arms. And uh, following the end of the study, you state in the paper that the placebo arm patients had the opportunity to choose to undergo PCI once they were unblinded. How many or what proportion of placebo arm patients actually chose for PCI? So the absolute vast majority of them. So of course you need to remember that when these patients went into the trial and we were recruiting from 2013, um, we had no idea what the results would be. These were people who'd clinically been promised angioplasty and told that they, was, they required angioplasty for their coronary stenosis and their symptoms. So they were always told that at the end of the trial they could have the treatment if they were randomised to the placebo arm. And the vast majority of they, them and their physicians chose to have angioplasty because, of course, we didn't know the results of the trial. And, of course, even now, we don't know if factors such as ischemia reduction will make a difference to their outcomes. And I think, you know, as you said, many patients want to know that the blood supply to their heart is improved. Um, and also what we need to remember is that real life isn't blinded. So, of course, in real life, when we tell a patient that we fix their stenosis, that may well contribute to them forgetting about non-cardiac chest pain, getting back on the exercise protocols that they were doing before so that they can actually essentially rehabilitate themselves. Um, and so that um, symptomatic benefit that we see clinically is probably greater than that that we would see in orbiter because, of course, those patients didn't benefit from that maximal placebo effect. And all patients had a six-week period of optimum antianginal therapy before randomization. Do you see a place for nurse-led optimization, as in three weekly contacts, going forward in clinical practice? So, of course, a lot of people have asked about this because um, the telephone conversations were very frequent, two to three times a week, with the patients having a blood pressure machine at home so that we could up-titrate their medical therapy. The reason that it was so intensive and over such a short period of six weeks was because of the clinical trial design. We wanted to make sure that we minimised the length of time these patients were in the trial in order to maximise the ability to recruit patients with high-grade stenoses in the proximal LAD and the mid-LAD, making sure that physicians didn't feel um, that they couldn't recruit these patients and that patients would be keen to take part 
in real life clinical practice, (laughs) I think you could certainly aim to get patients up to two or three antianginal therapies. You could do it over a longer period. It wouldn't need to be over six weeks and it can often take months. And then, of course, there would need to be regular consultations because these patients do suffer from side effects and you have to counsel them through that. In truth, I'm not sure the level to which many of our patients would tolerate the side effects because, of course, within a 12-week trial, they were perhaps able to tolerate fatigue, potential other side effects in terms of headaches, etc., because they knew that at some stage these medications would be stopped. And it would be interesting to see how they felt if you said you'd be on these medications lifelong. So in terms of long-term follow-up for the trial, we may see sort of a a tailing off or a censoring of patients who uh, may have discontinued their anti or reduced the number of Yeah, we we plan, there has been no long-term follow-up because, of course, from the point at which the patients were unblinded, um, we followed them up no more because those patients then many of them crossed over from the placebo arm to have PCI. And of course, the whole group was unblinded. So we felt that there was no further value in terms of collecting data from this group. You know, we have lots of unblinded data and the blinded data was what was important to us. Do you see a role then for um, community monitoring of patients either at home or Fitbit or all of these other? Yeah, I, I do actually, because, you know, what must be remembered is that I mean, particularly in the UK, many of our patients stay on waiting lists for a long time. And in that time, they could certainly be feeling a bit better with antianginal up titration. I think that we as interventional cardiologists have not been good at this. And I, as an interventional cardiologist doing a lot of the up titration, actually learnt a lot. You know, I saw patients telling me that they had been extremely symptomatic and then going back to Zumba class with proximal LAD lesions because they had the right level of beta blockers and calcium channel antagonists. So we could definitely do more. And I think the other thing to remember is that after angioplasty, some of our patients are incompletely revascularized. Some of them choose not to have it at all. And so medical therapy certainly is there. And of course, the guidelines recommend that we put these patients on two antianginals before even considering PCI. So perhaps it is time to kind of redress the balance a little bit and and consider that to be a valid option. Can you remind us, uh, on average, how many antianginals? Yeah, the so the average in Orbiter, they were on an average of three antianginals. So many of them were on much more than that. And you know, for many patients out there, I don't know what the compliance rates would be of taking that level of drug in addition to their aspirin, their statin, their you know clopidogrel or prasugrel, um, for the long term. So you know, it would be interesting to see. We have actually studied our patients in terms of urine compliance, and that data will come course within the follow-up period that's in our trial we'll certainly be publishing that in due course great um, and bearing in mind the readership for heart asia is the rest of the world so um, the indian subcontinent australasia the pacific east asia china japan korea singapore what are the implications for some of the developing nations in terms of cost and the implications from orbiter so i think what was most interesting to us is we designed the trial to be deliberately focused. We thought that had we put patients into a trial for too long, we'd have lots of crossovers within the blinded phase as patients perhaps became very symptomatic or developed acute coronary syndrome. In fact, we only saw one patient, albeit in that six-week follow-up, who developed unstable angina, troponin negative, but from the placebo arm, and he crossed over and had PCI and obviously was then unblinded and not followed up. So I think in those 
um, circumstances where perhaps angioplasty cannot be offered as early on as perhaps it is in the developed in the developed world you know giving patients anti-anginal therapy is a very valid alternative it makes them feel a lot better in terms of their symptoms and perhaps then you could rationalize those patients who don't feel better uh, and bring those patients to the cath lab or those patients who don't tolerate their anti-anginal therapies so i think it's you know it is good news for those areas of the world where angioplasty as a first line is really not an option because it it shows you that the alternative of medical therapy really isn't a bad one. Great. So I guess we could argue that in developing countries where access to an invasive PCI strategy may not be universal or quick or maybe constrained by cost or resource um, implications, do you think these stable angina patients can be reassured by the orbital outcomes? Yeah, so I think we can certainly reassure them in terms of their symptoms. We can say if we get you on the right anti-anginal therapy, we can probably make you feel pretty good. Um, maybe not quite as good as those patients who have angioplasty, but certainly better than you were because we saw all of those improvements in the placebo arm. In terms of reassurance for their, the blood supply to the heart, of course we can't give them that. We know the stenosis is still there. We haven't fixed that. That may have implication for them in the long term. So perhaps you might decide that those patients who are most ischemic with the greatest deal to benefit from an improvement in the blood supply to the heart, perhaps they go first in the list. But I think what we need to remember is that when patients are not able to have angioplasty for, say, cost reasons or you know healthcare implications, they have an option, which is to give them the right risk prevention medications and anti-anginal therapy. They don't have to just be turned away and told that there's nothing more you can do. There is something you can do in the interim. Great. I think that would be actually quite a relief to some of our uh, listeners that they're not really missing out. No, absolutely. And even here in, I mean, in the UK, I now tell my patients that we have two alternative approaches. And some patients opt not to have angioplasty. And when they opt not to have angioplasty, I say, well, you know, I can get you quite a lot better on the right tablets. And it is remarkable, actually, how much improvement you can make, particularly if they're willing to stick with the tablets and stick with the potential side effects and and sort of tolerate those. If we go back a little bit in history, Mm. around to 1977 thereabouts, in the five years following the original uh, Grunzig angioplasty, the index cases in the Lancet, there were follow-on case reports where the technique was applied to patients with peripheral vascular Mm. disease. And there was one particular case report where a patient went on to run a marathon because they had such good symptom relief. Do you think the orbiter findings may have some implication for peripheral vascular disease and its treatment? So, obviously, that's outside of my area of expertise, but it would seem reasonable to me to expect that, again, symptomatic benefit in terms of peripheral vascular disease intervention perhaps should be tested in a placebo-controlled fashion. Now, in terms of how the medical therapies are targeted for peripheral vascular disease, I guess we'd need our vascular surgeons to tell us what, what they would do. I think... It is. There are lots of interventions out there that we do that are there for symptomatic or subjective potential endpoints that probably could be tested in placebo-controlled fashion, and that applies to orthopaedics, gastric surgery. There are multiple things out there that we could consider testing in this way. So in a way, Orbiter kind of sets a modern standard for placebo-controlled trials. Well, I I mean, that's essentially how we ended the manuscript. If there's any take-home from Orbiter for the good or the bad and the criticism of the trial and obviously also the praise for the trial, 
if we take away from it, then actually it's very possible to perform a placebo-controlled trials, that the patients will be recruited. I mean, we recruited 63% of those eligible patients, which is actually a very good conversion rate when we expect usually 10 or 20% of our patients to say yes to a clinical trial. And the physicians are up for recruiting. So actually, there are, you know, there's a wealth out there. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about AF ablation, and I know there's a potentially planned trial here in the UK um, looking at symptomatic benefit from AF ablation, and I've been helping them a little bit with their protocols. And, you know, I'm also helping with a trial that's looking at embolization of the gastric artery for potential weight reduction. So there is a whole wealth of interventional procedures that perhaps we could test more rigorously, and then we'd be happier when we offer those interventions to our patients. You mentioned ablation for renal artery stenosis for, for renal uh, renovascular hypertension. And again, if we go back in history, it's interesting that uh, Grunzig himself advocated uh, stenting for renovascular hypertension as well. What are your thoughts, kind of, if we go back 40 years and come back again, what we know now about hypertension? Well, I mean, and- you know, renal denervation was very interesting. I mean, we saw up to 30 millimetres of mercury improvement on, in the unblinded trials, which is obviously a lot less in the blinded trial. By that time, we'd already invested a significant amount of money into renal denervation. A lot of patients had potentially had a procedure that perhaps didn't have as much benefit as we thought. So, you know, there's a lot to learn. I mean, we know that we see a clinical benefit from angioplasty. We just hadn't quantified exactly what contributed to that previously. Um, And I think in the end, for interventional therapies, when we're looking at subjective endpoints, these are not hard endpoints such as death and MI. You know, if you have a trial that shows a mortality benefit, you don't need to look for anything else. Um, But for these subjective endpoints, I think placebo-controlled interventional trials have to be gold standard, just as they are for drug trials. You know, we don't have a drug out there on the market that is introduced these days without a placebo-controlled test. And there's no reason why that can't be the standard for intervention too. So ultimately, the Orbiter trial challenged established dogma with evidence, and we think that's really to be commended, at least in the form of design and the bravery of the trial itself. Any parting thoughts for our readership? What's to be remembered is no trial stands alone. And of course, there's things that we could improve on a second iteration of the, you know, an Orbiter trial, and there's more to learn. We've got lots more manuscripts coming out, teasing out exactly which subgroups of patients may have got more benefit. And that, I think, will be perhaps even more informative than the primary manuscript. So I think, watch this space and see what else we've got to come. I'll be presenting the stratification of the Orbiter results by invasive physiology, by IFR and FFR in uh, EuroPCR, and hopefully that will be presented, also published in a major journal. And I think in time we will learn more about stable angina. And I hope that in other specialities um, they can kind of use this model to consider, you know, challenging what we do today, but also looking at new procedures in a more rigorous fashion. Thank you very much for Thank your you time. Thank you very much for having me.